0: thank you conway uh as always uh you uh, achieve levels of uh humanity and and sensitivity that is beyond most of us. Uh, I remember when I first met you uh, at a meeting uh, in uh, I don't recall whether it was Atlanta I think it was uh, with uh, Hal Molly and Pat Haynes and yourself and and for many, many years now, I have been an admirer of yours. Uh, your sensitivity in uh, in allowing me to give this first uh, Geraldine Delaney memorial address is uh, uh, very appreciated. Uh, there are a number of people that I recall very vividly, along with Jerry, that probably should be named. They included... Unfortunately, a lot that aren't with us anymore. They included Vicki Fox, the head of the Georgian Clinic, when I first started in this field. Uh, included Gordon Bell, who was, thank goodness, still with us up in Toronto, uh, with what was, I think at that time, called Donwood. Uh, there was Kay and West Irvine that ran a place called High Watch, just north of New York City. And uh, great people. And largely I, I fear forgotten now uh, Dick Karen uh, after he got out of Hazelden and started the Karen Institute uh, out in Robesonia Pennsylvania uh, uh, as a mimic of Hazelden Dan Anderson who luckily is still with us uh, but uh, and Ruth Fox the uh, the woman who started me out was my mentor uh, in New York City. Uh, they were absolutely fantastic people, and uh, along with Jerry Delaney, uh, deserve our constant appreciation for what was really an enormous change since the 1940s, uh, insofar as this country's concerned. All you have to do is go over to Europe and other uh, westernized nations and realize that they are just about the same in so many ways, and when we look at this particular way, there are huge differences. And those differences stem from these people in the last 50 years, along with somebody I didn't mention, should have, although she followed a different course, and that was Marty Mann, uh, the disease concept of alcoholism. She laid a life down for that through uh, National Council on Alcoholism. Uh, these were, were giants, and right now what we're doing, of course, is having the advantage of uh, stepping on their shoulders. Uh, Jerry. Had some particular particularly wonderful characteristics, one was the fact that uh, she had a belief system, and nothing could shake it and Fortunately, she was right <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and she carried through with it, and she had the courage to carry it through and even after le- losing her husband who who had uh, assisted her in, in starting this whole phenomenon uh, out there in blairstown new Jersey, uh, uh the fact is, she carried on as a as a champ. She wrote uh, well-known articles for major magazines, uh, national magazines, and again, was one of those people that uncovered the disease. Uh, great deal of credit to her. My, uh, uh, we will all miss her for good. Now, which brings me to the subject today. I'm not going to talk much about the thing that I was supposed to talk about. Uh, I'll talk about that later if somebody is particularly interested in it. Uh, because it's almost impossible to discuss uh, the treatment of the alcoholic and and uh, depression, which are tied together like that, uh, without a uh, a rubric on which to hang an understanding of the disease. And as I wander around and, and talk to others, uh, what I find is that people have different beliefs about what is alcoholism and how should you go about treating it. Uh, so what I'm going to beg from you today is to take your bias, which I respect, and put it away for an hour. Put it away, get rid of it, and just listen to my bias. And uh, and then use what you want, throw out what you will, think about it, amalgamate it perchance. We were remarking uh, just uh, earlier this morning that uh, Leo and I see one another about every 20 years. And every 20 years, we get on a platform someplace at the same time and realize that we've been marching along in lockstep all the way. The same belief systems, the same conceptual systems. Nothing has changed between us, even though we are 20 years on and far removed from where we were before. Uh, so, at any rate, loosen up just enough so that we can talk about the nature of the illness. Uh, I'm reminded about issues of bias and how we get stuck in certain positions about two things. One is that only dead fish always travel in the direction of a stream. <laughs> and the other is that if one is going to be a follower... Uh, then you have to remember the plight of the sheep. Those that follow step in a lot of stuff. <laughs> and you don't want to be in that position. So be ready to uh, take some risk in looking at the nature of this illness. I was shocked to realize on HBO earlier this year that alcoholism is a disease of the brain. I always thought it was a disease of the right thumb. Uh, the truth is, how could it be a disease of anything else but the brain? It's always been a disease of the brain. It was never a disease of the liver. People might have been afraid about what was going on in the liver. It's always been a disease of the brain. It was a non-discovery. And then you start to look at what is it that determines what we look at in science. I assume this is working all right so I can talk out here. If you if you're going to do research, the first thing you got to know is what's worth researching. What do you look at? And how do you determine that? In my years as a uh, as a lab chemist working on research, basic science research, belly up to the bench, uh I realized that when you design a research program, if you don't know something about the illness itself, you don't know what the hell to look for. You don't know what to bother with. You don't know what to ask money for. And in fact, the thing that might get you the most money might be the most unimportant thing in the world. It usually is. And reminded about the guy who lost his watch. Remember that story? I've told it to it so many times, I must apologize. was going home one night, and he sees a guy On his knees, looking on the ground, under a street lamp. And he says, what happened? He said, I dropped my watch. So he says, I'll give you a hand. He gets down and he looks all over the place. They can't find the watch. And he says, where did you drop it? And the guy says, across the street. (laughs) He says, what are you looking here for? He says, that's where the light is. That's where the money is. That's why we do research. That's where the grants are. See? That's not always, in fact, very commonly is not the best research. And the only person who can tell anyone what the best research is, is the clinician. Now, I don't care whether that clinician's a doctor, a, a counselor, a psychologist, a medical person, a non medical who cares? Someone that knows the disease, that would know which end of an alcoholic to plug into his ear. Now, if he doesn't, no, if he hasn't spoken to a thousand alcoholics, I'm not interested in his opinion. After the first thousand, you're just beginning to get smart. And I don't mean talk to them; I mean listen to them. My old chief of medicine used to say to us during my training, "I'm an internist. Forgive me; I have to define myself. My specialty is internal medicine. I trained at Sinai in New York in the '40s." And, uh, toyed with the idea of going into psychiatry. So in those days, you went into a, uh, a teaching analysis, which I did at that time. Then decided that I didn't want to proceed anymore down that row because I'd already finished my training in internal medicine and enough training. I was starving to death as it was. So somebody said, as I was ready to open up my first office, well, back, open up my first office. I was ready to rent two hours of time in an office someplace in Manhattan. Uh, somebody said, there's a woman named Dr. Ruth Fox who's looking for an analytically oriented internist those were her words not mine I didn't know what the hell that meant at the time uh, needless to say uh, and would you like to meet with her? of course I'd like to meet with her I didn't have no, one patient why not? I had nothing to lose <laughs> so we met and we had lunch on Lexington Avenue as I recall in the 50s and we got along famously and she was a nice lady a real sweetheart uh, she was old at that time, a good deal older than I was, of course, and she had the biggest practice of alcoholism in the United States. The biggest, the most patient of any clinic in the United States alone. She was handling it. She was the one that brought back Antabuse from Scandinavia in the late 40s. And Antabuse would sit in a fishbowl in the front of the office, and anybody that wanted it would take it and use it whenever, however they wished to use it. (laughs) By the way, no deaths. All right, which leads one to realize that antabuse, if we get rid of all the bias in the medical literature, is probably a good deal safer than aspirin. Many fewer significant abnormalities from taking it. Never remember a single case that she had trouble with. Anyway, I was hired on as the internist to detox her patients. Now my training was straight psychoanalytic training. I didn't know anything about alcoholism, never saw an alcoholic in my life. That was the benefit. I was going in absolutely unbiased. I was clean. I I didn't know anything about alcoholism. If I had seen alcoholics in my training, I didn't know I had seen them. So I didn't see them. I didn't know anything. I would go in each evening. I would detox in a small private hospital about three or four people a night that would be there for about four or five days. And, as was my training, I'd sit down in a chair with them while they're suffering, for the time, the first day or two when they're very uncomfortable, and they're talking to me for an hour. So I would spend four hours, usually from about seven o'clock to eleven o'clock at night, listening to the patients talk. And at the end of a year or two, after I'd seen my first thousand or more alcoholics, probably a couple of thousand by that time, there was no staff, No interns, no residents, just some very, very good nurses. Exceptionally good nurses. And all of a sudden I realized, hey, wait a minute. I know more about this disease than anybody I know except Ruth. And one of them came to me and said, instead of going back to see Ruth right after the five days, I want to see you at the office. I went to Ruth, went to Adele Stresemann, who was another analyst in New York that worked in the field of alcoholism, went to everybody that I could know and said, should I start to sell 50-minute hours and act like a shrink? And they said, yes, 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 do it. And so I started. And I have seen everything happen during the next 45 years. Everything. Including people jumping up after something I say, starting to cry, and race from the office never to be seen again. <laughs> so, if there's an error, I've done it. And in those days, there was nothing written that was any good. Nothing. And I'm sure that uh, uh, that Gordon uh, up in Toronto would, would agree with me. Uh, one thing came out in the early 50s. Uh, Collant wrote like like a, a, a real doctor, a real physician, a clinician. But he knew something about the disease, and it was a pleasure to read it. But insofar as treatment was concerned, there was nothing. Even Freud knew you couldn't treat alcoholism with his technique. So the question was, how do you treat? And what I'm going to share with you today is what I learned. All right? That's it. Pure and simple. Now, as I was about to say before I was interrupted with the uh setting the stage, one of my one of my teachers uh used to say before the days of cortisone, we didn't have cortisone yet. He said, if you can't recognize a person with Cushing's disease, too much cortisone. if you can't recognize them when they come through your, your, your door of your office, you will never make the diagnosis. Diagnosis is made from 40 steps away. You either make it or forget it. You ain't ever going to see it. And that's the kind of clinician that trained us. And they were good. My son, who's also a physician now and a very, very nice fellow and much more talented, my son looked at me at the end of his training and said, How did you make diagnoses before the CAT scan and the MRI? (laughs) How could you tell what was going on? And of course, in those days, you did make the diagnosis by feel, by smell, by look, by gait, by what they say. Eighty-five percent of the diagnosis was commonly the figure used for history making the diagnosis. Physical exam, putting the hands on, was mostly to make the patient feel good. Okay, so looking at alcoholism, at the disease called alcoholism, was no different for me. I looked at it as a disease. Ah, got into my first hole up to my neck. You know the old rule of holes? The first rule of the rule of holes? Stop digging. Well, there I was in the first hole. I looked at it as a disease. Why not? What's a disease? A dysfunctional state with characteristic form. I had to make up the the definition because looking through all the literature of the definitions, the definitions were rotten. A characteristic form to a dysfunctional state is a disease. That's not a symptom, then. That's a disease. All right, dysfunctional. Are they dysfunctional? Of course they're dysfunctional. Is a broken leg dysfunctional? Sure it's dysfunctional. Is it a disease? Of course it's a disease. Do you use medicines for it? No, you put it in a cast. Is it still a disease? Yeah. Who takes care of it? Docs? Physiotherapists? Nurses? All sorts of people. The whole caring community takes care of it. We all take care of it. Maybe even the neighbor, totally untrained, takes care of it. Get to their food. You ever try to go out on crutches and pour yourself some coffee and walk around? It's hard. Yes. Caring, medical caring, is not just physicians. Diseases are not taken care of just by physicians. The whole medical community, the whole service community takes care of them. Now, a dysfunctional state with characteristic form. Alcoholism got characteristic forms. Well, if a guy gets up on a television platform and waves from side to side a little bit, hiccups a few times, and stutters, everybody in America knows what he's supposed to be. Right? There are such characters. Or in a cartoon, all you've got to do is draw little lines around the nose. Right? Little lines around the nose, and everybody in America knows that this is supposed to be a drinker. What's so hard about the diagnosis if ten-year-olds can make the diagnosis and if untrained people all over the world can watch a TV tube and know that this guy's supposed to be a drunk if that's so true what's the big business about diagnosis? you gotta not want to diagnose in order to miss it that's how easy the diagnosis is (laughs) now, denial that brings it up right away of course, alcoholism is the only disease we deny. Uh, I want a show of hands. Who's had clap within the last year? <laughs> What's the matter? You deny? In other words, we deny every disease. We deny it to ourselves. We walk around bleeding from the rectum and don't get a sigmoidoscope. Yeah, we do it all the time. Even the experts do it. One of the best clinical teachers I ever had who taught me in medical school that the one thing you have is a change in bowel habits and a little blood in the stool and you immediately start thinking of cancer of the colon. Only he thought of hemorrhoids. Those hemorrhoids killed him. He died of them. Denial. So denial, your next door neighbor is not going to tell you they got tuberculosis. They deny it. They deny that they even have cancer. We deny all diseases. Alcoholism is just one. There is no difference between alcoholism, the disease, and all other diseases. Alcoholism varies. I have all those those uh, Greek alphabet things that tell me that alcoholism varies, that there's no one alcoholism. Baloney! Baloney! And, ah, they did it! They did it! I have nothing to write on this thing with. <laughs> I got a chart, but nothing, no crayons or anything. Uh, does anybody have a... <laughs> okay, I'll do it without. All diseases are expressed in a continuum. It's not a normal curve, but it looks like a normal curve. Over here, there are the typhoid Marys that wander around spreading epithelial typhosa, but they don't have the disease. Yes, they got the bug. Yes, they have the disease, but they don't have... Oh, is that a big marker? Hey, great. Thank you. So, here we go. Good. These people over here, you don't even know that they've got this. They're the ones who wander around as social drinkers, maybe. Okay? Hey, great. Thank you. I was already saved, but thanks very much. Okay. Now, in here, you may get the usual garden variety that everybody can diagnose. Even the deniers can diagnose those. In here, you get the group that have complications with liver disease and cerebral atrophy and you name it, all sorts of stuff. And over here you got the ones who die before their 20th birthday no matter what the devil you do for them. A spectrum of expression of a disease. You get typhoid and you are an old duffer like I am. Excuse me, not typhoid, tuberculosis. And you get get it in here, in this part of your life, at the tail end of your life. If you never make the diagnosis, it doesn't make much difference you get the exact same bug, same disease. In an infant, you make the diagnosis that week, or that kid's dead. Same bug. Two different ages. I remember when I worked in the TB San years ago, during my training, and we knew that if you were a Jew or an Italian, we could do more with you in the treatment of your tuberculosis than if you were a black or an Irishman. If you were a black or Irish, that... TB was going to go fast and you better get going and do something quickly for them. The resistance was different. Well, how different is that than what we see with alcoholism? Alcoholism also has a spectrum of expression. It's not 14 different diseases. It's all TB. It's all alcoholism. It's all the addiction. There isn't abuse. Abuse is when you take a bottle of Jack Daniels and you kick it. You can't abuse an inanimate object. The only reason we use the word, I won't, you lose your ink. The only reason we use the word is because we want to say something nasty about it. Like self-abuse. Oh, that's right. This is the only disease known to mankind that we cause ourselves. We don't cause diabetes ourselves. We don't cause cancer of the lung ourselves. We don't cause high blood pressure ourselves. We don't cause accidental deaths ourselves. In fact, when you go into practice and put your fanny on the chair and listen to enough stories, you realize that most people die of what they choose 30 years before. We pick how we die, usually. Very interesting. You sit there and listen enough, carefully enough, and you see human beings choosing the way they're going to end up. And if you sit there for 50 years, you see them end up that way. No. The fact is that this whole process of disease and human beings is no different with this disease than any other. And there is no alcoholism, alcohol abuse, alpha, beta, gamma, num, primary, secondary. There isn't any such thing. That's all baloney. It's one disease and it comes in a spectrum of colors. And just look at it all and make it hang together. Again, one of my chiefs, Snapper, who's now dead a long time ago, Isidore Snapper, used to say to his residents, never divide, only be a lumper. What he meant was that when this disease acts like this disease, put them together. And by comparison, by contrast, you learn something. If you can take five different illnesses and stack them on top of one another, you may see enough similarities to be able to learn something about this one from this one. If you take one disease and subdivide it into ten categories, you learn nothing. Nothing. The only time you have an opportunity to subdivide into separate categories is when you know all there is to know about the nature of the disease, the cause of the disease, the, uh, the, the uh, process, the progress of the disease, the prognosis. When you know all there is to know about the etiology, then you can divide. Until then, you are a lumper if you are smart. Only fools divide it. Okay. Now where are we? The disease. The best way to learn the disease, I think we've already said, is by clinical observation, like any other disease. When the CDC wanted us to be able to to verify whether an epidemic of XYZ was natural or made, manufactured, like the anthrax that they're worried about now, what they did was they took a group of us, interns usually, sometimes pediatricians, and they gave us tickets to the airport. Tickets for planes. Tickets to Tunisia for the latest meningococcemia epidemic. Tickets here. Tickets there. Go visit the epidemic. Visit the epidemic. Smell, see, feel, listen to the disease so much that you know it by heart. That you can spot it when they go this way instead of that way. And you know. Once you know the disease that well, then you're a pro. That's what makes the pro. And I don't care what discipline one person's in. Doesn't matter. Observation that makes the difference. So clinical observation is the thing that tells us something about the disease. Okay. There I was, sitting on my fanny, trying to take care of people with a technique that I didn't understand and nobody knew anything about. And, uh, I began, I used to practice medicine all morning, took care of hypertensives and all the rest of it all morning. And then when I got tired of being on my feet, one o'clock, I'd plant my fanny in the chair and I would see one hour after another of alcoholics for the most part in those days until about seven o'clock in the evening, every single day of the week. They said, they will be nebulous, they said that alcoholics lacked control. And I looked at the patients and I saw that my morning patients with their asthma and their high blood pressure and that and the other thing had very little control. They didn't have problems with control. They didn't talk about control. They didn't try and control anything. And my afternoon patients had enormous control. Their middle name was Control with a K. Control. You know, they controlled everything. I had one guy who only drank in the rear the last row of a movie theater distilled spirits in a paper bag through its straw watching the movie So a lot of grade B movies he was the ol- that was the only way he ever drank never drank any other way talk about control who will I marry will he or she drink with me to be free to drink or not drink at all and control my drinking for me where will I work Will the boss drink along with me? Or is the boss going to be out of town so I can get away with it? In other words, everything in that person's life was controlled by the drinking. And when you talk about control, they really had it. When a guy would stand up in front of me at my desk and say, Doc, I can't have alcoholism. I can control my drinking. That makes the diagnosis nobody else has to no one has I don't control my beets my spinach I don't care I'll eat as much spinach as I want <laughs> I don't control my, my alcohol I don't remember whether I drank yesterday or three years ago yesterday I have no idea and I don't care even broccoli doesn't bother me <laughs> as soon as a guy has to control something buddy you're standing in the first hole already and you haven't thrown out the shovel yet So that's proof control is not missing in my patients. They got too much because they need it. So wrong again. Then, ah, man named Isabel did some wonderful studies uh, out in Lexington with volunteers. Uh, They were locked up, but they were they were able to be called volunteers in those days. (laughs) And what he did was he first fed large quantities of booze, and he wanted to demonstrate that no matter how, mu- how sick he got them with the large quantity of booze, that <clears throat> the fact that they ate good meals, three meals a day, did not stop them from getting the withdrawal syndrome. Because everybody, right after the, the end of uh, uh, Prohibition, everybody wanted to say, oh, booze is wonderful stuff, and you, know, you only get sick from booze because you don't eat, etc. He wanted to put the lie to it. So what he did... But, as you all know already, that if you graph psychomotor activity, this is very nervous and edgy. This down here is falling asleep. Here you're what the kids call cool or relaxed or laid back. Here you're asleep. Here you're dead. (laughs) Here on the graph you are agitated. Here you can't sleep. Here, if you're smoking cigarettes, you got to put your thumb over here in order to find your mouth. Uh, And here you're having grand mal seizures, all right? So, and you get this. Then, after that wears off, just about two, three hours, it wears off, and you get something else. You get this. That's above the line. That's agitation. Now, another thing I learned, nobody drinks for what it does tomorrow morning. That's a rule. Nobody drinks for their liver. And nobody drinks for what it does in the next, next day. And the fact is that nothing is like booze. Nothing. There is nothing that you can take by mouth <clears throat> that will give you the effect, the rush, the whole nine yards in moments. What does it take? Two minutes? A minute? I mean, it takes almost no time. Where is it reaching? The stomach? Hell no! It's going right through the stomach. It's reaching the squash. You can only have that effect by getting to the brain. There's no other place that does it. How do they get there so fast? Because alcohol is one of the very few substances besides water that can pass through the gastric membrane. A large amount of alcohol is absorbed through the upper small bowel. If you take an aspirin for a headache, be ready to wait 45 minutes, maybe 60 minutes before it works. You don't have to wait 60 minutes for booze. In fact, if you want some chemical to get, reach your brain and have an effect that fast, the only other way of doing it is to shove it up your rear end stick a needle in your arm and give it that way or breathe it in and smear it all over the the alveolar membrane of the lungs no other way anything by mouth never works as fast as food quicker faster more effective well that's the name of the game that's one of the reasons we're here this stuff is irreplaceable Now, but it only lasts two hours. If we superimpose the blood alcohol level on this graph, we see that it goes like that. We see that at the end of the two hours, when the effect is almost gone, we see we are at the peak alcohol level. So if you look at how that person feels at this alcohol level and at this alcohol level, they are the same. Here, they are... Sedated. Here, they're agitated. The same blood alcohol level. You can't tell beans about what's going on with that guy just by the alcohol level. You need more information. Now, so what did, what did Isbell bell do? He gave lots of booze. And he had this curve, and what did he do? He gave drink after drink after drink, and he raised up the psychomotor activity level. And then while it was still this agitation being balanced by today's sedation this agitation having been caused by all the previous sedation at that moment Son of a gun he stops the booze. and out they sail with no visible means of support <laughs> and three out of eight or eleven of them I've forgotten which it's so long ago it was an article called Rumpfist it was printed in what was then the quarterly journal I believe alcohol study uh, Three out of, out of eleven, if I recall, had either acute alcoholic hallucinosis or DTs. They got sicker in hell. Now, he proved then something. First thing he proved was that this disease, the cousin here, is directly the effect of the pharmacology of the drug. And by the way, that pharmacology of the drug is true with all sedative drugs. All somnifacient, soporific drugs. That includes barbs, alcohol prototype, barbs, placidil, naludol, uh, bromides, uh, peraldehyde, chloral, ether, uh, benzodiazepines, metrobamates. It doesn't matter which you put in there, they have this diphasic effect. And therefore, any one of those can do exactly what the alcohol does to so the squash. And just like maintaining alcohol over any period of time, as so many of our patients do, just try to keep it under control, doesn't work, neither does the solid sedatives work, for the same reason. Because my patients, when, when uh, Valium, the first came out, they used to call it, Only the very driest of martinis. (laughs) Yeah, very dry indeed, but exactly the same. And you cannot treat this disease while feeding them alcohol or any replacement drug of that sort. Now, there are lots of drugs we have that don't do that. The phenothiazines don't do that. The antidepressants don't do that. I mean, there are loads of drugs that we have that don't do that, but the drugs that do do it are listed over and over again and we know you can't play in that sandbox. If you do, you get into trouble. You may not... All right, before I say it, folks would say to me, well, look, he drank. He's got to get sick right away. No. Most of my patients could drink. Most of my alcoholics could drink. They could drink for... An hour, a day, sixteen, eighteen 18 weeks. Take a drink. They could never, never, never in their entire lives drink safely. If I would say to somebody, Hey, I'm going to give you a million bucks, but you got to be willing to do this for me. In a split moment at any time, I will tell you, jam down the accelerator, even if you're on Park Avenue in Manhattan in the middle of the traffic, and hold it to the floor for a minute, for 60 seconds. And the guy would say, you're crazy. I would never do that. I'd get killed. And I'd say, but every drinker does that. Because he never knows when somebody's going to say, jam it to the floor. And if you don't know when, how could any rational human being say, okay, that doesn't make sense. That's a no-brainer. Except all well, my patients would accept that degree of risk. Now, so what did he show? Isabel showed that you could addict, physically addict, the old pharmacologic term, uh, that you can make dependent anyone, any volunteer. And I showed that too in my own hospital with, with people who would volunteer, real volunteers, one was the, uh, chief of the Reli- department of religion at NYU came in for me to feed him 34 ounces of Chevrolet Regal for a week or more. Anyway, a day, a day. <laughs> Wake him up at night, here's an extra four ounces. <laughs> the liver marches down to the Iliac crest in 48 hours. Bum, Livers like that. Anyway, the, the fact is that he showed you could make dependent anybody. You don't have to be an alcoholic. So what's alcoholism? He didn't do the last part of the study that I would have loved for him to do. The last part of the study would have been to say to Charlie, just after he fractured his spine with a grand mal seizure, was lying in a spiker cast in the 19th, end of the 1940s in a hospital bed in July in the delirium treatments itching and unable to scratch and uncomfortable and irritable and tremulous and deranged and you name it, and they get you out of this body cast in about three to six months. What well, he should have gone over to Charlie and said when he gets out of the cast, Charlie, I, want to, I, I forgot to measure your serum sugar. On the first day of the whole research study, it'll ruin everything. I want you to do the study again. Again? Charlie would kill him. Charlie probably would kill him even without asking. But there are a group of other people who come down off here and come around here and volunteer to start it again. (laughs) And again, and again, and again, and again. And I looked at those people and I said, My God, that's the disease called alcoholism. That line... Returning to the site, to the scene of the crime, that line is the disease.
1: When I was a little kid,
0: I liked fire. My mother, who's now 95, still tough as hell, and she was sure that I was not going to get myself into trouble with fire, so she gave me two of those big old wooden matches in the kitchen, and we struck them together, and I held them in my hand as we watched it burn down to my hand. You know what? I don't do that anymore. Cure All right, done. Fire the hell of that! You know, <clears throat> I was only about three, but that—that that was it, though. That finished it. The blisters healed, but the memory stayed. So I look at these guys here on this line, and I say, "What the hell is the matter with them? Don't they know?" And they go back to the scene, and they say, "But I only drink wine." I'll only drink beer I'll only drink on Fridays I'll only drink hanging from a chandelier by one leg <laughs> I won't do it that way I'll change how I'll do it and somehow or other it'll make it better and you know what bum 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 and wham same thing happens <clears throat> coming back around after a number of swings around on this, the family is gone the job is gone the health is gone any equanimity is gone they're puking blood in the gutter in front of the office it's a mess and you look at him, you say, this guy, this is, hes an idiot. What is he doing? They, they must be the stupidest people in the world. I was three and I learned better than that. <laughs> and then Leclerc Bissell did her wonderful study on alcoholic, recovering alcoholic physicians and found that the incidence of AOA, uh, the, uh, the, um, Phi Beta Kappa equivalent in medical school, the incidence of AOA amongst Recovering alcoholic physicians is higher than amongst their peers in the same class. They're not the stupidest. They're the smartest. They can learn everything else better than anybody. Not that. Not this. But everything else they can learn better. And it was exactly what I saw in the office. It's it. Because in the office, these were the brightest, nicest, Greatest people I had. I mean, you could keep the people with peptic ulcers. And ulcers and all <laughs> But these guys were great. And they were not stupid. Now, some looked pretty stupid by the time I first saw them. I remember one guy who had been the, uh, he was the editor of Newsweek magazine. And he had been dry now for about a year. And I saw him at the office and he couldn't think his way out of a wet paper bag. Yeah. You know, So something obviously had changed. It didn't take a a, a rocket scientist to know that this was not the same guy that was the editor of Newsweek. So something can change, but that's from the booze. That's not from the human being. The human being is bright as hell. The human being is gifted. They're the smartest amongst us. If we waste them, we do so at our peril as a society. They are probably 10 to 20 percent of our population and if you count the ones way over here on that other curve the so-called social drinkers if you count them as mild then you have probably a lot more than 20 percent number of affected families huge number of kids getting the disease mammoth now if you look at all of that and you say that we're willing to let this bunch go down the tubes in this society, we're psychotic. Because that doesn't make any sense at all. All right. We're just getting started, and my time is over. I haven't even gotten to the subject yet. Okay. Uh, a movie. Best movie on alcoholism ever. And it doesn't mention the word alcohol at all. And that was Goodfellas. Remember Goodfellas? It starts off about the gangsters, and starts off with this kid, 15, lives across the street from the clubhouse of the Mafioso in Jersey, <clears throat> and he says, monologue, he says, ever since I was a, as long as I could remember, I've always known that I wanted to be a gangster. I almost fell out of my seat. What the hell did he know what it was like to be a gangster? Nothing. He knew that they drove up in big fancy Cadillac you, He knew they parked next to the hydrants and nobody bothered him. He knew that they got the best seats in the restaurants and the theaters. He knew all the things he had to know. Because what did this kid have? This kid had something that every addict has. He had the need to feel special. What a piece of poison that is to swallow in life. You get that chunk of poison, you're in much worse kind of hole than anything else. At the very end, after he's been repositioned out to Nevada or Washington or something or other in the witness protection program, and he saved his life of his, his wife, and his daughter, he has another monologue, last scene in the movie. <clears throat> and he said, well, we've all been saved and life is easy and this, that, and the other thing. But you know what? Boy, do I miss it. And in fact, there's a comment on the screen that he was arrested with his assumed name out in the state of Washington breaking the law again. The need to feel special. Now, What I wanted to, I have an hour's discussion now, and no time to give it, what I wanted to discuss with you is, what is that need? And where does it come from? And how do people get it? Because they all get it the same way. That's the shocker. They all get it the same way, and I discovered that from my associate, Dr. Henneke, 25 years ago. Because for 25 years, I missed it. I missed it. I didn't know why. She knew why, and she was right on the money. And we wrote a paper at that time, first delivered in 1980 in Salt Lake City, called The Mosaic Theory of Alcoholism. Stemming from the fact that almost all diseases are caused by a mosaic, there's not ever one thing. It's a marriage of the person, their makeup, the stuff they're born with, the stuff that happens to them in the first three years. That plus the availability of the drug or the bug or whatever it is. It's always a fit. And if you don't have the exact fit, <laughs> unlucky, you can't be a drunk. <laughs> Too bad. Won't work for you. <clears throat> uh, where's my, my mentor? Uh, Conway? Can I take ten more minutes? Okay. <clears throat> now, the game of life. Alexander Hamilton said that if you want to know how a game comes out, all you got to know is the rules. If you know the rules of the game, you can figure out how it's going to come out. Of course. And he was absolutely right. He was talking about the United States Treasury system, but he was right. So a bunch of philosophers and old clerics have sat around on stones for the last 5,000 years or more and have figured out what are the rules you kill your neighbor eh you're not likely to have a very happy life you steal his wife ah eh, your life is going to have problems you get yourself sick over and over again by drinking too much fermented wine ah eh, something's not going to work too well there in other words these guys whether they came from a religious group or the philosophers or just right observers, good clinicians they figured out what are the rules and they set up 10 commandments, 12 steps all kinds of things and they figured them out and they are in remarkable agreement I agree as it happens with my friend Leo I think organized religion got us all into a lot of trouble after that, because the wisdom was already there. The wisdom was clinical. The wisdom was following people. I used to tell people when they come into my office, I'm a medical tout. I sit at the racetrack here in my office and I keep notes on what happens to this alcoholic and what happens to that narcotic addict and what happens, and pretty soon I know who runs on a wet track and who runs on a dry. I have the dope on them. Well, what were those Ten Commandments? They were the dope on them. What they said was that if you live life this way, it'll work pretty well. Now, that means that the damn thing is designed. It's got to be designed. And I looked around to say, well, how is it designed? What is it designed like? and I suddenly realized it's designed as a herd animal you are not a panther you're a zebra welcome zebras you are a herd animal when there were caves if there were five caves and six people six people lived in one cave you cling together you relate you bond If you don't do it, you are in trouble up to your ears. So that anything that stops you from doing it destroys something that's very valuable. I changed my definition of the addictive diseases at that time. 1980 was the first time I gave it. A group of illnesses, quite a large group, as you all know, a lot of overlap, a group of illnesses characterized by the use of any technique whereby that individual attempts to adapt to life other than interpersonal relating. That's the whole story right there. That's 50 years of experience. Right there. Almost 51 now. Alright? Any mechanism for adapting Be it drinking, scratching your ear, playing pinball, stealing, screwing, you name it. I don't care what, overeating, puking, I don't care what it is. That doesn't utilize adaptation by means of interpersonal relating. You see, that's the whole thing. Because if you can do this, you don't need that. The problem is, my patients couldn't do this. That was the essential thing. In life, That was the part, again, Dr. Henneke came up with. I didn't. And what was it that... I can't give you the proof now. We'd have no time. What was it that said all this? First off, the child comes into the world with a computer. And just as was said yesterday, absolutely correct, only we have used different terminology, that's all. The child at the age of three doesn't remember a damn event in life. I have one memory when I was almost three years of age, sitting on a table when I first got my mastoids, just before the surgery, and I was a mess, and I have a vision, and I can describe the room I was in, that my family remembered. Uh, But otherwise, I don't remember a thing before that age. And most people don't remember before the age of three. Well, you know what? You finished, finished, learning an entire language by that time. What the hell is this? What do you mean? You can learn a whole language but can't remember a single event? Yes. And that switch gets thrown, very nicely described yesterday, that switch gets thrown from being able to learn to holding the memory somewhere between two and four. And by four, (laughs) jigs up, kid, that's it. And you know what? Whatever went in to that stuff that got learned in the first two years is in forever. You can never get it out. You will never erase that. And mostly, that is an affective tape. I use the word tape because my patients can understand it better. You have a tape in your head that remembers what the tone of the music was. Was it a B minor or something else? What kind of tone is this person going to have for the next 80 years is set before 4. It's in the tape. You remember Dr. Strangelove, And he jumped up in the Pentagon when the bomber was on its way to Russia with the H-bomb. And what he wanted, of course, was to send all the rest of the bombers. Because he was a Nazi and he was in his black leather coat and he was sitting in a wheelchair and every now and then he wanted to tell the American generals Send all the rest of the bombers. Finish the job right now. And he'd leap out of the chair and say, Heil Hitler! And suddenly realize he's in the wrong place, the wrong time. And he struggle to bring the hand down. All right? What I'm saying is, that's in. If that's in, it doesn't come out. The best likeness I can give to you is a faulty autopilot on an aircraft. If you've got a broken autopilot, every time you put it on, you crash and burn. That doesn't mean that you cannot hand-fly the plane. You can hand-fly it forever. A little more work, more sweat, more time. It's hard to eat a bologna sandwich while you're doing it and talk on the radio at the same time. But you can do it. You can be done. I've done it. So, what I'm teaching my patients is DON'T TOUCH THE AUTOPILOT! Because you're going to react the same way every time, no matter how old you get. And what is the on-off switch? The on-off switch is thrown by, for the most part, one thing, feeling unloved by someone who really should love you. Poor thing. Alright? In other words, something that evokes shame, not guilt. something that makes me think of myself as a pile of crap I'm no good and I hate thinking about myself that way but my tape loves it in fact my tape says to me oh come on do it one more time I'll be nice to you this time and WHAM! (laughs) breaks your head alright? in other words For the very reason of trying to feel better about yourself, he takes you down a road guaranteed to lose. Now, that's terribly critical. I have to teach my patients all about this. i got to share every word that we've been doing up till now with every patient who ever comes to my desk, because if I don't, they are not armed. I tell them the very first day, you're fighting a bull. Nobody locks horns with a bull without putting their fanny in the dust but you can learn to fight a bull you can learn to use a cape you, but to do that you have to learn all about the bull you've got to know everything there is to know about the bull you've got to know how he moves when he charges which direction his horns go and if you don't you're just bull meat that's all okay so the upshot of all of this is that Something happens to this child so that they get a bad piece of information. A guy named Kenneth Williams many years ago said to me, and I think, were you there when Ken Williams said that about anime? Yeah, said, alcoholics have anime, A-N-O-M-I-E, rootlessness. Don't know what I'm a chip off of. And then came away from that and had already said to me at that time, hey, there is a failure that takes place here in every alcoholic. They fail to bond with a parent of the same sex. Always the same sex. Always. I've never seen exceptions. Sure, they exist. <laughs> and when that failure takes place, the failure that you're going to find is usually within the first four years, almost always. Not 100%. And what do you see? The female alcoholic tells us about mom died in childbirth with me. Or mom was sick, lying around the house, very sick. Or away in a hospital. Or dead. Or found another better husband and left without me. Or, or, or. The most common description was mom was tight-assed and narcissistic. Boy, is that an injury for a little girl. Right between the eyes. Fathers, or moms is drunk. Mom was here, 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 all over the lot. Never precise. Didn't know who I was walking into. The boys, almost the same thing. There was one other group with the women and the men. Mom, for the female alcoholic, Mom was really kind of timid and nice and pleasant, and she loved me. And Pop used to beat the crap out of her every week. And I'll be damned if I was going to model that kind of life. And they don't. The boy usually said, dad wasn't bad. He was pretty nice, sort of a Casper Milk Toast, married to a Sherman Tank. Didn't pay to identify there. It's too abusive. Guy goes, a kid goes to a baseball game, Pee Wee League, first game. He goes to the game and he plays what position? First game, right field. Right, right field. Everybody starts at right field, and he stands there, and no ball comes, right? Nothing comes, and pretty soon he's lying down and he's picking leaves. <laughs> he's taking the grass apart, you know. And along comes a ball, hits him in the head, and rolls to the gate. Okay, and he doesn't know how to throw, and the other kids are saying, "Ah, what's he doing out there?" This and the other thing. Okay, shame in spades. This kid is the luckiest kid on earth because his father decided to come to his first peewee league game. His father looks at him, walks over to him later and says, You know what? The same thing happened to me my first day. It always happens. Happens to everybody. We always start there. It's boring. Same exact thing. It doesn't mean anything. A couple of more times and you'll be playing other positions and you'll have more fun and it'll be swell. And what do you know? Let's go have a chocolate soda no shame, from the only human being on earth that could have done it, all right? The person with whom that little boy had to identify and grow through those four years, five years, knowing that he was a chip off this block and that he was loved. Now, I do not, definitely, I don't have the time to go into a whole business about stimulus augmentation the setting that is required to get the disease that Dr. Henneke did, where you are born with a preamp turned max. So that whatever it is, ah, yes, my bell, everything that takes place, takes place loud. You receive all the bad news that you feel, worse than anybody else. All right? Now, if you have that, and then you don't bond with the parent of the same set, You are on the cross at that point. You are just waiting for the first drink at 8 or 12 or 18 or whenever it takes place or the first belt of whatever drug. Doesn't make any difference. And goodbye, Charlie. You got the disease. That's the minimum it takes. There may be more things, but those three things must be in the mosaic all the time. If they're not there, literally, you're almost unable to catch the illness. It's that simple. So how do you fix it? Uh, give me one minute. I'm going to give you how you fix it, I think. <laughs> oh, did I lose that? Okay, somewhere in here is how do you fix it? And I probably left it in here. Give me one second. Uh, and it's a, it's a circumstance. Ah, here we are. How do you fix it? One other person that we lost this year from cancer of the lung. Dr. James Knight. Jim Knight was a, uh, a dean at uh, uh, Tulane Medical School. Dean of psychiatry, dean of students. One of the brightest, nicest men you ever want to meet in your entire life. He was an ordained minister prior to, prior to becoming an MD and a professor of psychiatry. He had it all. He introduced me to this little thing. Which I will read to you because it tells a mouthful without me taking too much time. Thornton Wilder wrote about the pool at Bethesda, uh, in 19, early 1920s. He's called The Angel That Troubled the Waters. That was the angel that came down, mixed up the waters, and the first invalid who jumped in would get a cure. Uh, and he wrote this. Has only three people. A newcomer, a mistaken invalid because he jumped in too soon one day, and the angel. Newcomer starts, come long expected love capital L. Come long expected love, come long expected love, let the sacred finger and the sacred breath stir up the pool. Here on the lowest step, I wait with festering limbs with my heart in pain. Free me, long expected love, from this old burden, since I cannot stay, since I must return into the city. Come now, renewal, come, release. Mistaken Invalid says, hey, you have no right to be here at all events. You're able to walk about, you pass your days in the city. You come here only at great intervals, and it may be that by some unlucky chance, you would be the first one to see the sign. You would rush into the water, and a cure would be wasted. You are yourself a physician. You have restored my own children. Go back to your work, and leave these miracles to us who need them. Newcomer ignored him, and under his breath he said, My work grows faint. Heal me, long-expected love. Heal me that I may continue. Renewal, release, let me begin again without this fault that bears me down. The angel makes himself apparent to the newcomer and he says, Draw back, physician. This moment is not for you. newcomer says, angelic visitor, I pray thee, listen to my prayer. The angel says, healing is not for you. Newcomer says, surely, surely, the angels are wise. Surely, O prince, you are not deceived by my apparent wholeness. Your eyes can see the acts in which my wings are caught. The sin into which all my endeavors sink half-performed cannot be concealed from you. And the angel replied, I know. Newcomer went on, it's no shame to boast to an angel of what I might yet do in love service. were I but freed of this bondage. The angel stood quietly and then said to the physician, Without your wound, where would your power be? It is your very remorse that makes your low voice tremble in the hearts of men. The very angels themselves cannot persuade the wretched and blundering children on earth as can one human being broken on the wheels of living. In love's service, only the wounded soldiers may serve. Draw back. He drew back. The angel stirred up the pool. The mistaken invalid jumped in, got his cure, said, Look, my hand is as new as a child's. Glory be to God, I have begun again. Then he turns to the newcomer and he says, May you be next, my brother. But come with me first, An hour only to my home. My son is lost in dark thoughts. I do not understand him and only you have ever lifted his mood. Only an hour. My daughter, since her child has died, will not listen to us. Thornton Wilder realized that you walk through the hellfires of your own life as the mechanism for being able to understand other people with similar suffering. It's the only mechanism. Jung knew it. Anybody who's worthwhile knew it. You can't put somebody like this on a couch and let them talk to a ceiling. They die. You give yourself. You are the bridge. I am the bridge for bringing them in. Walk on me. I'll hold you. Trust me. I'll hold you until you can walk and help the next person. Not going to go into further detail. I have three more hours I can talk. <laughs> Goodbye. <laughs> <laughs>